Everybody, come come say hello to Darrell. Darrell is one of our two residents. Who's met Grant, our other resident? Uh, Grant's generally not in this room at this time because he's in student ministries, um, but, but we're so blessed and thankful to have them both. And please, if you have a moment, come, come say hello to him um, at the end of today's service. We are walking through... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, not the whole of it at the moment. We are just doing the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the passages that are sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes that begin um, with the words, blessed are, uh, and it started in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. 5, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And today we come to Matthew 5, verse 10. And before we go any further, let's pause and ask the Lord to join with us in this moment. God, we pray for your um, gift of understanding and wisdom as we spend a time, God, together in these scriptures. God, um, we pray you would teach us. Open our eyes to see uh, the way in which you would call us to walk, the things you've called us to stand in. God, encourage us, strengthen us, give us grace and faith that we might persevere for the sake of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5 verse 10 says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 continues, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, the Bible is not presenting here a picture of, of something that is pretty. Um, it's not holding up for us a church that is made out of crystal or gold or expensive things and people that are doing very well. Instead, it's presenting to us um, a picture of something that is called persecution. And, and if we want to um, understand more about persecution, uh, we need to remember that God firstly made the world absent of persecution. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, you'll see that God made the world and he said after every day that the thing he'd made was good. And eventually at the end of making all of things in creation, he said that it was very good. And so God's pronouncement over the world that he made was that it was good. There were good things in the world. But then something went wrong. And so that we can get a glimpse of partly what went wrong, because we know what the Genesis story is, but if you were to turn all the, other, the way to the other end of the Bible, and you were to look in the book of Revelation, you'd see something that John says in Revelation chapter 12. And remembering that John, John is in exile. An exile is something that's happened to John because of his testimony for the Lord. And he's been sent to live in a particular place that's away from everyone else. And John has a vision of heaven, and so the heavens open, and John sees into the heavenly realm. And when we look into the heavenly realm, we get understanding about things that are happening here on earth. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm going to be moving about a bit today, and I will paraphrase sometimes. I will always give you the reference in the scripture so that if you want to write it down or go back and listen to the podcast or the video later, you can check it out for yourselves. And I would recommend that you spend some time with some of these passages because, because they really are important in helping us to understand uh, how we persevere. And so if I had to give today a title, it would be The Way of Perseverance. Perseverance is a characteristic that is necessary in Christianity. It's a necessary ingredient. It's something that it's like if we were baking a cake and we mix out yeast, for example, the cake wouldn't rise. Christianity without perseverance, Christianity without endurance just really doesn't work very well. And, and so to help us endure, we have to understand the full picture. And the fullest picture I can understand is to look as John was doing into the heavenly realm. And so let me read and just listen as I'm um, reading some of this from Revelation 12. And I might move about a bit. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and seven horns and seven diadems, which are crowns on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so you begin to get a sense of the purpose that this dragon has. There's a woman about to give birth and the dragon is ready to snatch the child and do harm to the child, to devour the child as soon as the child is born. Verse five, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations and with a rod of iron. Who is this talking about? Who's the child that rules all nations with a rod of iron? His name is Jesus. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and the child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And so don't get lost in some of the imagery here because no one really understands what this is exactly about. People that tell you that they know exactly what the book of Revelation is about are not, are not, not always right. Um, because it's interesting pictorial language generally to give us a sense of something that apart from the imagery that we wouldn't understand. And so just get a sense. There's a dragon, and the dragon has mal, bad intent towards the child who is Christ. And whether the woman is Israel or whether the woman is the church, it says later in verse 7, war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fight with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But this is the good news. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven anymore. So from the heaven's perspective, things are good because the dragon and his angels fight with Michael and the angels, and there's a third of them, and they lose. And this is where it gets bad. It says that the great dragon was cast out, and it tells us what his name is, that serpent of old who showed up in the garden, right? The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. How much of the world does he deceive? The whole of the world. And he was cast to the earth. Where do we live? And his angels were cast out with him. How many of them? A third of all the angels in heaven were cast out to the earth with Satan. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren 
who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So heaven is celebrating because Satan and his hordes of evil have been cast out of heaven. And sometimes when we praise and pray, as Darrell was saying, we find ourselves in this place where we're, we're dwelling in the spirit, spirit realm and all the earthly things begin to move away from us and we forget the troubles and the cares and the concerns that we had moments before because heaven is open to us and we're living, as it were, in this space that Satan doesn't dwell in. But then it says, then they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to the, to the death. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, whether that's Israel or the church or all God's people, who gave birth to the male child, but the woman who was given two wings and the, of a great eagle that she might fly to the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and time, half a time from the presence of the serpent. The serpent spews out water from his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. He's not giving up, is he? But the earth helps the woman. The earth opens its mouth, swallows the flood out of the dragon, which spews out of the dragon's mouth. But then verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who's that? Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So when we look into this heavenly picture that John sees, we see a dragon who hates God because God threw him out of heaven, who hates the angels of God who overcame in that war that they fought in heaven. He's thrown to earth. He's persecuting God. God's children, the church, he's persecuting Jesus. He's ready to snatch up this child and to do evil to the child. And at the end of the day, he's persecuting everybody who has the testimony of God. Now, I needed to start with this because we need to understand where persecution comes from. And persecution begins in this place with one who is persecuting. And so all persecution, persecution is because of the evil work that is being done to inspire that persecution. So persecution is originating from who? Satan. Persecution is originating from where? From the devil. The devil is called in the Bible the God of this age, the God of this world. Think about that for the moment. That the world we dwell in has a God. In another place, he's called the prince of the power of the air. And so in some sense, it's clear that he has authority and power to do things, right? And it's clear even from the temptation of Jesus that Jesus is in the wilderness, and who comes to him to tempt him and to test him? Satan himself. So he's paying a close attention to Jesus even. And so who are we to think that we live lives that he doesn't have his eye on? That he isn't paying attention to us because we have the aroma of Christ or the scent of Christ or the testimony of Christ. But if you have ever read the beginning of the book of Job, who's ever read the book of Job, who knows the story of Job? It says there that Satan's going to and fro and one day comes to present himself before God. And effectively, the beginning chapters one and two, if you've never read it, go have a look at it, seems to say that God sets limits to what he can do in Job's life. And so terrible things break out in Job's life, but they're all within the limits that God sets. And so let's not, under, let's not lose sight of that, that there's this terrible, evil, vile, 
water spewing, fire spewing, evil intent filled dragon who wants to kill us all. But God has set limits to what he can do. And this is the other good news that I've got for you at the start is God always works anything that is persecution for good. And we need to know that because we need to understand that when we're going through difficulties and trials and tests and temptations and tribulations, that God will still work it for good. Let me give you four examples of that in the beginning of the book of Judges. And you think of the context of where the book of Judges comes in the Old Testament. Joshua has already taken all the land. We know that that's happened. And so they've come into the land and they've taken the land and they've dispossessed the people that lived in the land from the place they were and the people of children of Israel are now living in the land that they've taken from those who were there beforehand. But the interesting thing it says at the beginning of the book of Judges is this. So do you think God just threw all of the nations out and gave them this lovely land to live in that they could just walk around in and there'd be nobody to oppose them? He doesn't do that. Because at the beginning of the book of Judges, chapter three, it says there were nations which God left that he might test them, all of those who hadn't known any of the wars of Canaan. And so it's weird. God leaves nations around them so that it, those who hadn't fought in war might understand war. So God seems to say to them that there's a purpose for opposition, that if I withdrew opposition, somehow the outcome for you wouldn't be good. And so work that out. So we think, God, just take, us, take all the bad things out of the world and we'll just live in this idyllic, happy place called Eden like that. But no, it's not like that. God left opposition in the land to teach those who hadn't known warfare. Warfare, so warfare, and actually pressing against something has purpose. You'll understand it. If I stand here, I'm already dealing with the forces of gravity. And if I, if I don't resist gravity, then eventually my legs will waste away. But the reason that we work out, because every time I do a squat and lift up weights, sometimes my son lifts huge amounts of weights and some of you might lift weights and stuff. You're pushing against the natural forces in the world that tells us that there is already opposition. How many of you understand the principles of aerodynamics? Okay. <laughs> but we understand that if we're gonna move, we're already resisting, there's air in our way. And so if we don't work out how to get the air out of our way, our cars won't go fast and our race cars won't go fast and our airplanes won't stay in the, in the air. And so God has built into even nature gravity and wind resistance and all sorts of other things to tell us that we're meant to push against things to get anywhere. And if we don't understand that we're meant to push against things to get somewhere as Christians, we'll never push. And when we face opposition and difficulties and trials and persecutions, we'll quit. But if instead we understand that this is the purpose of it. This is why God left the nations in the land, because if, if Darrell and I had been in the tribe and, and, and it had grown up and, and there were stories of our brothers and fathers who'd done war and they'd taken the land and we heard about it and thought, well, that's lovely, but we're glad we weren't there. No, God says, hang on a sec, I've left some for you two. We're like, well, wouldn't it be nicer if you just didn't leave them? Because we don't want to fight. And isn't that our Christian testimony? We don't want to resist. We want it to be easy. We don't want to have opposition. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9, seems to tell us this, that God has made a point. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, In this you rejoice, though you for a little while have been grieved by various trials. Telling us to rejoice in trials. Why? Verse 7 of 1 Peter 1, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold which, which perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the trials, the purpose of the difficulties is that there's something that God wants to work out in us. That when we go through trials, God is concerned that our faith is perfected. And that if we don't go through difficulties, our faith isn't perfected and our faith isn't proved to be genuine. And God seems to say it's like the process of refining gold, that the gold that goes through the heating and the skimming away of impurities at the end of the day leaves something that is better. And so the faith that we've given by God through trials is strengthened and gets us to the point of receiving the salvation that God has reserved for our souls, it says in verse 9. Romans 3, 5, verses 3 to 5, says it slightly differently. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. So where does perseverance come from? And perseverance produces character. Where does character come from? I once heard someone define character as who you are when no one else is around. Interesting. But this tells me that character is who I am after I've persevered. My, my character comes after I've persevered. Char perseverance only comes from tribulation. And then it says, perseverance produces character and character produces hope. So where do we get hope from? Through going through it. When we persevere in tribulation, character Character produces hope, and it says hope doesn't disappoint. You see that, that there's these substances of hope and faith that God wants to perfect in us. So when we go through trials, God is perfecting our faith. When we go through trials, God is building our hope. And so when we quit in them, our faith doesn't grow, and our hope doesn't grow, and our faith is as precious to God as the most precious substance. So in other words... James says it in a slightly other way, and, and it's, it's horrible the way James says it. Um, it actually says, count it joy when you fall into various trials. I mean, who does that? Count it joy, James chapter 1, when you fall into trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You see all these, all these saintly men are saying the same thing. Peter says it. Paul says it. James says it guys whose words we're still reading, guys who walked with Jesus, who were proximate to Jesus, told us that at the end of the day, when you face stuff, it's important that you persevere through it because God's trying to do something in you that's about the perfecting of your faith, the perfecting of hope. And it says in James, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, which tells us that if we quit every time it gets tough, we're never perfect, we're never complete, we do lack, and so maybe we have to go through the same thing again and again. So God's working persecution for good. Let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying persecution is good. I'm saying that God always works persecution for good, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our hope, to build in us character. And if you think how it works in the book of Acts, when persecution comes to the church in Jerusalem, what do they do? They flee. They preach the word everywhere they go. God uses even the persecution that comes on the Jerusalem church to spread his word. So God's always using persecution for good, even though persecution itself isn't good. But when you look at this text, the first thing you see it says is, blessed are those who are persecuted for 
righteousness sake. Let me tell you what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are obnoxious. Blessed are those who are, have a lot of people upset with them because they are opinionated. Or blessed are those who are persecuted because of the political stance that they take. Or blessed are those who are persecuted because of their sin. The Bible actually tells us that we've got to make sure we don't have sin in our life so that when stuff's working against us, we're clear that that's not what it's for. And it's not because you've posted things that offend people that have nothing to do with Christ. If people have upset you with, with you for that, then good. Seriously. Because there's enough reason to be persecuted in the world. But the real reason that we should want to see persecution come in our way, and I'm gonna to talk to you about that in a little bit, is because of the sake of righteousness. It's because we do something that is kingdom-oriented. It's for the kingdom, it's for Jesus, it's for his name's sake. And interestingly, it says that even, in, you, how many of you are familiar with the parable of the sower? Uh, the Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 when a man goes out and sows, and he says the first thing that happens is birds come and peck the seed away. And he, he gives the birds a name, and he says the birds are the evil one who want to snatch away the word that is sown so you can't understand it. You realize that's the same as the dragon. The birds are doing the same work. They're trying to get in the way of the thing that God is doing. But the second thing that happens is, interestingly, Matthew 13, um, I think it's, it's verse 21, it says, it says that some who hear the word with understanding begin to spring up. But it says that the sun begins to beat down on them. And opposition, it says, arises because of the word. And so this is the interesting thing. If we don't have any word of God in us, we'll never face opposition. If we don't have anything about us that is God, if we're not standing for God, if we're not following Jesus, we'll face no persecution at all. It's like a promise. But interesting that the scripture says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anyone. And so let me ask you here, what's the Lord's word to you? What's the Lord said to you? What's the word the Lord has called you to live by? When you get up every day, how are you walking in a direction against the forces of the world, in a direction that is because God told you to do it? When you put your foot out the bed and you get dressed and you make your coffee or your beverage or whatever you do and you get in your car and you go to where you go or you go to the office and work at home or you don't work, are you doing it because God's the one that gave you a word to do that thing? Are you living a life according to the word of the Lord? Because if you are and if we are, then it says that we will face opposition. But the spin of that is if we don't face any opposition, then are we living lives according to the word of the Lord? Because if nothing's pushing back on us, then where's the dragon gone? What's he doing? Is he sleeping? Has he lost interest in persecuting the things of God and the people of God and people who stand according to the word of God? Has he gone away? Of course he hasn't. He's paying attention to those who are walking that way. And sometimes when you hear of persecution happening in other parts of the world, it's because they might be walking more after God than this country is. Or other parts of the country 
or people doing particular things, walking harder after God and facing more opposition because he's like, well, I can leave those people in that church because they ain't really walking after God. But those people there, I have to pay attention to them and those people in that country, I have to pay a lot of attention to them and I have to focus my attention on there because if I don't stop that, oh Lord, that might cause something kingdom to happen. But instead, let me just leave those who are doing nothing for the kingdom just to do the thing that they do because of we don't know why they do it. It would help us maybe if we had a scale of persecution. I was thinking about this. Um, maybe one to 10. And I think we can easily put at 10. What's, what's 10 on the persecution scale? Death. Death of just yourself. What if they killed someone you loved? Would that be a 10? What's a little less than a 10? What's a nine? Torture, all right. So death of ourselves might be a 10, of our loved ones might be a 10. Torture, not quite as far as death, might be a nine. We came a little further down, what might we find around the eights or the sevens? Jail, do we go to jail? Really bad jail might be like a seven and a half, right? A jail with air conditioning, not so bad, right? <laughs> House arrest. What else? What's the six? What about exile? Who's heard of anybody recently that's been exiled? But imagine this. Imagine if someone said to you that because of your faith in Jesus, I am taking your passport, you can never come back in the United States of America. You've got to go find somewhere else in the world to live. I don't care where that is. Who's heard of that happening to anybody they know? Okay. So exile still happens. Remember that we're still talking about for righteousness sake. We're not talking about because you stood up for something that was just nonsense or you just took a, a position against the government or you did something that had nothing to do with the kingdom. What about when nature is against you? You think about when Jesus gets into a boat and goes to cross to the other side of the river and what comes up against him? A storm. A storm. The prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, can't he work up storms? What happens in the book of Job? If you don't believe me, go read in the beginning of the book of Job when it says that Satan presents himself to God and God says he can come against Job. What's Job's house destroyed with? A storm. Sounds a lot like a whirlwind, some kind of tornado that breaks through. But Jesus, in the midst of the storm, that's on the way to cross the river to go and deal with a demon-possessed man, gets up and says to the storm, shut up. Be still. And so somewhere in this, let's understand that sometimes the weather can be against you in the thing that you're trying to do. You might lose your property. You might be denied a right. You might be ostracized. You might be verbally abused. Where's verbal abuse come on the persecution scale? Is that a four? Is that a five? Is that a three? Is that a two? You might be harassed or intimidated. What about when you just are afraid to do anything and you can't even put your finger on why it is? If I said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna put on a shirt that says, Jesus is Lord. And we're gonna go to Times Square. Who's with me? You see? 
Even if the tickets were free, how many of you come in then? <laughs> we're going to see some theater in the evening. <laughs> but you see, that there's this, there's this intimidation. I keep turning up at hotels, and they got statues of all sorts of things. They have statues of Buddha all over the place. Crosses aren't in a lot of hotels. They have Bibles in the drawer, but the, there are other things in the drawer as well, other books, if you've checked recently, that aren't the Bible, that just got in there. The world is set against God. The world is set against our God. And at the zero to one end of the persecution scale are things that stop us from even starting something, and we can't even put our finger on why it is, other than to understand that the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, is trying to stop us starting. Just as in the parable of the sower, it says that the birds come and peck the thing, the seed, to stop, the bird, the, stop understanding. Satan's working right at the point of understanding. If he can't stop you with understanding, and if you begin to walk after God, he's gonna oppose you in the thing that you're trying to do. And the strength of that opposition is gonna get tougher and tougher and tougher the more it is for the kingdom. And the one who did the most for the kingdom ever was who? Jesus. And how did that end for him? You see, so the church of the New Testament is a church that had a, someone they'd been following and the following of Jesus meant maybe that. And 2,000 years later, here we are, and what I don't want us to do is to lose sight of the fact that that's the basis of our faith, to persevere in the face of opposition against the voice of culture, against convention, against orthodoxy, through the fog of confusion when it's hard to even hear or discern what God is saying to us. How many of you went to the last Discover Labs? How many of you can remember what your two words were? How many of you have done anything on the basis of those two words? You see, the hands shrink. It's hard to do one thing for God because we have an enemy who's opposing us in it. And the opposition begins, as I'm saying, with little things like understanding and forgetfulness. I don't even remember what it is that God asked me to do because I didn't write it down or I wrote it down and I don't remember where I wrote it. And I wrote it, and then it, I started to try, and it got hard, and I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do it because of whatever reason, and, I, and so I quit and did something else. And, and I remember, and it was like 12 years ago now, and maybe if I could find it again, I'd do it again. You're understanding how this works with, yes. And it's not, our world is not neutral. I wish the world were neutral. I wish the world were neutral, that we can play with the world and enjoy the things of the world, and the effect of that is not actually just to kill the kingdom. But the truth is that it is about killing the kingdom. And it is about killing the kingdom dream. And it is about killing the things of God that God wants us to walk in. We aren't the first people that have experienced this, though. Because um, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 is, is, is a wonderful chapter that is a, uh, sometimes called like the, the hall of fame of faith. And when you realize that everybody there experienced the same opposition with the thing that they did that was about righteousness, then we find ourselves in good company. In Hebrews 11, chapter 4, it says, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You know the story. Cain hates what his brother does and does what? Kills him. 
persecution. Right there, in the beginning. But Cain, it says, God testifies of, uh, sorry, God testifies of Abel's gifts that he was righteous. And so Abel tries to do something for righteousness sake. His brother doesn't like the look of it and shuts it down. Noah, verse 7 of Hebrews 11, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Think about that. The word of the Lord comes to this man called Noah and tells him to do what? Build a, an ark. Why? Because of floods going to be gone. What, what, what started the flood? Rain. Had there been rain? No. So God comes to you and says, Cedric said, Terry, I want you to do something that's, that's never been done before for something that has never happened before, right? And what I want you to do is I want you to spend your entire family fortune on it. So Julie's going to have to be in this with you, right? Um, and it's going to take, let's just imagine you've got 15 kids, right? All your kids are going to have to quit their jobs and build this because if you don't do that, you'll never get it built in time. And you say in time for what? For this rain. What's rain? You'll see, Right? And eventually this big construct begins to be built in the middle of a field. How big is it? It's huge, right? And you've had to sell your house and buy another house and you're mortgaged up to the hilt. You're like, this is a one-way trip. <laughs> if it doesn't rain. And everybody's mocking you, Tedrick. So uh, how's it going with the ark? Yeah? And um, so you've, what's this thing? Rain. Oh, tell us about that rain. Yeah? You understand how this works, don't you? The second you begin to do something for God, you set yourself up to be mocked by the whole world. So if the world isn't mocking you, then is it for God? Or as culture and church become so intertwined that they're indistinguishable, that once the church and the culture are so intertwined that culture doesn't actually persecute the church anymore because the church is just culture. You go back and look at history when the Holy Roman Empire became the church and how that transformed things. Good things came out of it, but at the end of the day, there was this intertwining of church and culture that meant that the persecution stopped, but the edge that the church had, the effectiveness that the church had was dulled. And so if you're building this ark and then the rain comes and yeah, you're vindicated eventually, but I don't know how many years you've got to do this thing and persist in this thing that God told you to do. Moses has this, um, Noah has this experience. Abraham has this experience because God tells him, Abraham, leave your land and go live somewhere else. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll show you. Is it sounding similar to what God said to Noah? Go to this land and when you go there, I'll show you and you'll know where to live because you'll be in it and I'll explain it to you when you're there. So Abraham sets out, and that's all fine until God tells this old man that you're going to be the father of nations, and he might be, how many 80-year-olds, anyone, you don't have to put your hand up, anybody here who's over 80, you have a dream tonight, God says you're going to be the father of nations, the mother of nations, and just imagine you have no kids yet, how does that go down in your house? But it's 20 years until it happens, so you're 100. And you see why when the angel shows up, Sarah laughs. Because it says that when the angel tells Abraham that now's the time, his wife, who's about 100, laughs. Now, why is the 100-year-old woman laugh about having a child with a 100-year-old husband? 
You see how God does this. And you think that at some point his neighbors aren't mocking him because his name gets changed to Father of Nations somewhere in this process. So hey, Father of Nations, how's it going being a Father of Nations? Where are the children that make you a Father of Nations? Like I've got no kids yet. I've got no kids yet. And so the world is against him. So much that he even comes to the point that he says, look, let me just take matters into my own hands, bring in Hagar, and let's, I'm just going to work this out that way because, because God is taking too long. Moses. When Moses is born, what's the first thing that Moses is up trying to avoid? Being killed. Who's trying to kill him? Pharaoh. Why is Pharaoh trying to kill him? Because of the dragon. We can find all sorts of other intricate little reasons, but ultimately, dragon gets a sense of God's up to something with this one. Just like when Jesus is born, Herod's trying to kill Jesus. He's trying to shut this thing down. You go back to Revelation 12, this dragon is waiting for the child to be born because as soon as the child is born, I'm gonna kill it. But somehow God snatches the child out of the way of the dragon. See how God's working for good in the midst of it all. But at some point it says that Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. They weren't afraid of the king's commands. Moses refuses when he becomes of age to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So at some point in his life, Moses makes the choice, righteousness. So if we have two ways to go, and we say, I'm gonna walk in the way of righteousness, the way of the kingdom, the way of the word of the Lord to me, or not, this way will always lead us to some kind of persecution wherever it comes on the one to 10 scale. And that is an encouraging word. It is. Because it's better than me putting up a picture and saying that Christianity is this easy path and nothing's ever gonna go against you and it's gonna go perfectly for the rest of your life and you'll never face opposition. You'll never be ridiculed. You'll never be mocked. You'll never maybe lose a job. You may lose some of your livelihood. You may be in jail and God forbid it could be worse than that if you walk in the way that God's called you to. But this is the good news because it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, God's best is in the path of righteousness. Walking the way that God tells us to walk is God's absolute best path for us. Everything other than that isn't. And so even if the way God says to walk is a difficult way, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven is God's promise. God's promising us eternity now and the experience of life and fullness of the kingdom now. So if the way you're walking means that you go without sometimes, you have a little less than you would otherwise have. If the way you're walking is according to faith, according to the word of the Lord, means that sometimes people ridicule you or humiliate you or maybe don't speak to you at work or maybe don't speak to you in your neighborhood, or maybe look at you weird, or say bad things about you because you're walking after Jesus, because you're following him, then the good news is that you're someone who possesses the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's promise to us. And so when Hebrews 11 ends with these words, what more shall I say? For the time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, 
who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still, others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And then the beautiful words to us, verse 12, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 1, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those witnesses? Moses, Abel, Noah, David, Jephthah, Samson, Gideon, Barak, Rahab, Enoch, Isaac, all of those who are in that difficult passage towards the end, the ones who were mocked and scourged, enchained, put in chains, imprisoned, the ones stoned, sawn into, tempted, slain with the sword, the ones who wandered around in the wilderness place, the world not worthy of them. Therefore, since we, Grace Married, are surrounded by that cloud of witnesses, people who walk the way of righteousness instead of the other way, people who said, I'm gonna walk in a way that is about righteousness every day of my life, with the strength I have, whatever comes. Since we're surrounded by them, it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so my challenge to you on this day is what race are you running? What's the race you're running? What's the race you're running according to the word of the Lord to you? A race that makes us worthy to stand in the company of those who we've mentioned. A race that makes us proud to call Abel a brother, Moses a brother, Rahab a sister. It tells me almost that there's gonna be a day when we might be standing in glory next to people who were sawn in two in this world or imprisoned or faced lions and will we be worthy to stand with them? Will we have walked in a way that meant that we persevered with the thing God called us to, even though we got tough or we chose something lesser? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We began by singing earlier about how God reigns and God rules. Sometimes when we go through 
passages like this, it's easy to feel discouraged. Let's not lose sight of who's on the throne of heaven now. Let's not lose sight of the fact that the beginning of the book of Ephesians tells us that we are seated with him in the heavenly places now. And that even though we dwell in the world, the tension between living in the world and, and this spirit, spiritual experience of being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms is one of tension and difficulty. But let me close with these words, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. So remember where we began in Revelation and the dragon stuff, and go read it and work out what it means yourself. Um, you'll get a sense of the hatred and the anger that's directed against anyone who looks like or is walking according to the word that God has given them. Ephesians 6, 10 says this, Finally, my brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand. So that's my word of encouragement to you. Stand. What does stand mean? It means don't quit. Stand means don't quit. It means when I anchor my feet in the ground and the waves and the wind buffet me and press me and cause me to want to move, when the waves subside and the wind subsides, where do I find myself still standing? So wherever you find yourself on the perseverance scale, evil words being spoken against you, you might have lost a job opportunity, your livelihood, friends, neighbors. It could be far worse. Wherever you are on that scale, perseverance is about standing. Perseverance also is about asking for help to stand. There comes a time when we go to our brother and sister. The reason we gather, the reasons it says we don't neglect meeting together is that what we do here today matters. This isn't just coming in and just sitting here. It's coming in and recognizing that there might be someone here who if I don't go up to them and say something to them and pray with them might not make it because of the difficulty that they're experiencing. And so we sing so that the person next to us can hear us sing. So when we sing, my God reigns, or hallelujah. They hear us sing it. And they're encouraged by hearing it. So we don't sing for us. We sing to God and we sing for our brothers and sisters. I wanted us, Angie, if we could, in a minute, to just start where we go back to hallelujah, our God reigns. Just that song. I don't know what key it was in. So let give give, me give you a moment to get there. Perseverance is about asking for help to stand. Perseverance is doing what you can to help others stand. So look around you, please, literally, look around, at least 180 degrees. Turn your body if you can get further. Lock eyes with somebody. Wonder what their story is. Don't be afraid of going up and saying to them, what's the Lord's word to you? My minister in London used to do this to me the whole time. Brother, what did the Lord say to you today? And if I didn't have an answer, I was in trouble. Not just with him, but because the scripture says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that 
proceeds. Present tense proceeds from the mouth of God, right? Jesus is the one that utters this to Satan in the wilderness. When Satan's saying, turn the rock into bread, Jesus says, oh no, hold on a sec. It is written, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Present tense, not a 200-year-old word, not a word of 10 years ago, but what has God said to you today that you stand by? Challenge one another with this. Expect answers. How are you walking according to the word of the Lord? What's the thing you're doing that God has told you to do? How are you living the way that God has told you to live? How are you persevering in it? And if it's hard for you, let me help you. Let me bear the load for you. And if you're not, let me encourage you to go and find something to walk after. But before we go on to the last song, you can do this. It's really, we can do it a cappella if we got it. I just when we were singing, I just want to remember because I wanted to sing this and sing this. This is why we're doing it to one another. Hallelujah, our, who's God? Ours. Our God does what? Reigns. Not hallelujah, our God lost. No, not hallelujah, our God is a loser. Not hallelujah, our God can't do anything. Not hallelujah, our God is powerless. Not hallelujah, our God is never anywhere near the throne. Hallelujah, our God is on the throne. Yes, and rules and reigns even in the midst of persecution. And so he says to us, walk after me, follow me, do the thing I've told you to do. Even if it's hard, even if it's impossible, even if you don't want to do it, even if you think you could never do it, do it anyway. Because that is the best for your life. The absolute best for your life is God's purpose, God's plan, nothing else. Everything else is less. Everything else is less. But don't be afraid when you face persecution because it tells you, oh, hold on a sec. It's not because I'm an idiot, not because I'm obnoxious. It's not because of my political postings. It's because I'm walking in the way of righteousness. And so the enemy is facing me down. And so I stand in confidence with my brothers and sisters, a great cloud of witnesses in whose company we persevere. Can we just sing, hallelujah, our God reigns. And then we'll come back to communion.